The following program is a podcast1.com production. Let's play. something that I don't get and I just don't think is fair. For some reason, society, people, I don't know if it's society, but people expect certain types of performers or artists or entertainers to Always be true to the form that introduced them to their audience. Um, case in point, I guess, would be someone like myself, who has had always had a very difficult time getting people to accept me in a form other than heavy metal hairband guy. Musically trying to change musical direction has been virtually impossible. Now, the argument could be that, you know, I didn't come up with something as good or as entertaining or whatever as Twisted Sister, possibly, but it seems to be more than that. There seems to be this expectation that, you know, you will be true to the form that or genre that you were always in. And that to vary from that is, you know, is, is, I don't know what it is, a violation of some unspoken law. And I've just, the, the thing that brought this up to me was my, uh, my, my show a couple of weeks ago, my podcast about my former relationship with Howard Stern and what happened to us. Um, I did not realize that Howard has been dealing with a, uh, with a certain degree of attack, for lack of a better word, on the Howard Stern he's become as opposed to the Howard Stern he once was. And I was kind of lumped into it, even though my podcast, for those who listen, know it was anything but an attack. It was nothing but complimentary. Um, and But the part of... Where I talked about where our relationship came apart is where a few years ago I said that Howard was associating with people now that he wouldn't give the time of day to 20 years ago, that he had relationships and that you know, these were his friends. And um, this is something that Howard got upset with me for saying and brought about the, the end of our relationship. Um, and if you didn't hear that episode, go back and you'll get all the details on it. But... To find out that that this is the exact thing that he is currently under fire for by people, uh, it, it was I, a I I want to I want to point out that I did not time that 
podcast to coincide with this movement, for lack of a better word. But I don't agree with it. I do agree with the fact that he has changed dramatically. But the point I'm making is why does someone like a Howard Stern or D. Snyder have to be the same person he was literally 40 years ago? Literally. 40 years. Why can't we change? Why can't we evolve? Why can't we even go against what we represented? Now, I'm proud of the fact that I stand by everything I represented. And it's wonderful if you can. But if you now you look at politicians, Hillary Clinton mentioned this the other day. This is not an endorsement of Hillary Clinton. I'm not endorsing anybody at this point. Not Donald Trump, not Hillary, not Bernie Sanders, nobody. I will ultimately I will vote and I will pick somebody. But right now it's too far out and things are still kind of flipping around and my verdict's out. There are people who are jumping on board with different people and that's great. People are passionate this election. Passionate. My kids are passionate about Bernie Sanders, and there are plenty of people out there passionate about Donald Trump. And it's great to see passion again. It also reflects just how pissed off people are with the system. But I digress. But I digress. Hillary was called on the fact that she had changed her position on things that she spoke about many years ago. And she said, yes, I've changed my position. New information was provided to me. And only she didn't now. I'm paraphrasing, but only a fool holds fast to something they know to be wrong or something they no longer agree with. You can have a position and get new information. You should be able to change that position. You should change that position if it no longer works for you. That's not flip flopping. That's growing. That's. That's, that's processing. That's being enlightened at times. Only a complete moron holds fast to something despite any new pertinent information that's introduced to him or her. And being an incomplete moron, I can speak on complete morons. Um, so, but back to the, you know, to, to the Howard thing. You know, while I would agree that his show is not a shadow of the show it once was, and as a Howard Stern fan, and I, and I haven't listened in years, but, but every now and then I'll rent a car and I'll have Sirius and I'll, I'll pop it on. And it's like I can't recognize the show, especially when you see that contrast for me between having listened to it 10 years ago and now – and now, um, and have been on the show 20 years ago and spent so much time with the, you know, back in the heyday of, you know, of Fred and Gary and Robin and, and Jackie Martley, when the show really was the show. I mean, and missing all those wonderful sound effects and those wonderful par- song parodies and, and uh, you know, and just that, that riffing that went on between the group which I loved being a part of in the 90s, in the late 80s and early 90s when I was very involved with the show. Um, You know, I miss it. But I got to stand 
by Howard's right to evolve and change. A show that was devised and created in his 20s. If the fact is that in his 60s, he's just not feeling it anymore, that's his right. Now, it's also your right as listeners to not listen, and that is your voice. Your voice is, hey, I no longer, turning it back to me, I no longer like the music you're doing. You've gone in a direction that I'm not interested in, and I will no longer support you and buy your music or, or go to your concerts. That's your voice. I'm just questioning the people who verbally, vocally attack or question an artist because they've changed, because they've evolved. You know, you saw it. Um, you know, we, music, music is the big one. You see it a lot with music. Very hard to transcend what you did to establish you, to move to something different. Very hard. Now, in other in movies, you know, uh, actors are allowed to if they if they came into the scene as a uh, as many do in horror movies, and so many great stars got their start in horror movies, they're allowed to move on to another genre as long as they do it well. You know, uh, many many have tried and not done it well. And many have died and gone running back, you know, into with their tail between their legs, back to the genre that begat them, that gave them their start. But still, they're allowed. In music, you really don't. I, I, maybe I'm coming up blank. And if you could think of people who have really done that, changed genres, changed formats successfully, um, I'd love to see it. Now, there's some who did it early, like Goo Goo Dolls. Who started as pretty as a pretty edgy band originally, believe it or not, and they got discovered as a pop band, and they sort of just and went that way. But Goo Goo Dolls, as a as a, I, I don't know if they were punk or what they were, but they were definitely much much heavier. But they weren't weren't really known. So I'm talking about people who were established and known for something, and then made a change, a music change, a format change. You know, so. Um, you know, so it, it, I just, and I guess this is really um, hitting me because I am about to do such a thing. I have been approached by a major songwriter of pop songs. Of, well, of not just pop songs, of hit songs. This guy's name is Damon Ranger, and he has Grammys, he has Emmys, and he has an Oscar for Life of Pi. He's written songs for Kanye, for uh, Lady Gaga, for Pink, Katy Perry, Roar, um, you know, just just uh, Taylor Swift. The list goes on and on. This guy's involved in writing so many songs for so many people. He was down in Nashville working with Steven Tyler. And I ran into him, and he approached me. And he said, D, I think that you are iconic. And I think you could be reintroduced to a contemporary audience as a contemporary artist with the right songs. And I said, you know, what do you mean, Damon? He goes, well, look, you are iconic. He says, I think you're ageless in a way. You're the voice of rebellion. You're the anthem guy. 
And I think that the right rock anthem with the right attitude presented by you, but to a more mainstream audience, could be successful. What do you think? I said yes. And when I finish with Twisted Sister next year, I'm not retiring. I'm retiring from that. I'm retiring from being a headbanging maniac on stage. Because I'm old! And, you know, and, and what I do to my body on stage is abusive. But I want to still feel challenged, and I want to try things. And I've been in the studio with Damon. We recorded some things. And they range from like active rock, contemporary active rock to, to, um, you know, foo fightery kind of rock to pop, a heavy pop, nine inch nails, for lack of a better word, to queen stadium anthem stuff. And the reaction within, it hasn't been let out there yet, has been really strong. And I am about to sign new record deals to present me. As a contemporary artist in 2017. And here I am looking at, you know, as I, as I look at this and looking at what Howard's dealing with and looking at what I've dealt with in the past as I've tried to change or grow and looking at other bands like Metallica when they put out Load, which was an amazing record. I know there's people screaming at the Metallica fans, screaming at, the, uh, at, the, at, the, at their laptop right now, right? Screaming, no, it sucked. It wasn't Metallica. But they were... I mean, why aren't we allowed to change, mature, and grow? I don't understand. So I, I'm heading down that road, and, you know, I guess I'm looking at the bar- down the barrel of a gun, so to speak. <laughs> and I would love for people to say, hey, I'm going to try and give D a chance here. You know, I knew D is a 20-something creating this kind of music. Now he's literally a 60-something and a lot of time has passed, and he's got something new he wants to say. So, yeah, we'll see when that, we'll cross that bridge when it comes to, to it. All right, so this is the deal. Um, War Stories Part 4. Violence. Yeah. Uh, you know, the War Stories podcasts are really well received. You guys like hearing the tales of your. Well, this one is going to focus on violence, on violence in rock and violence in my career, because I don't have the sex and drugs to tell you about, but violence kind of followed Twisted Sister and me and played, I don't know, it was a big part, but certainly it was, it hung over my head like the sword of Damocles. Uh, And I want to share some of those stories with you. Say you're looking to get a new car. How are you going to find out what the best price is? Well, you can go from dealer to dealer to dealer in your area, walking, diving, should I say, into a shark tank, negotiating a deal. You know what that's like? It's so damn stressful. You feel like you're getting ripped off by these guys. Then you go to the next place and go through the whole thing again. Then you can figure out who's got the best price, but do you really know for sure? And talk about the effort that you're putting in. It's insane. Or if you know the car you want and you're ready to buy, you can use True Car and the True Car app. No headaches, no hassles, just the car you want at a price you could feel good about. I've told you the story already about my son who bought a car, him and his girlfriend, and it's been bugging him now for two years that he got ripped off. 
He went to the dealership. He thought he was getting a good price. Like I told you, they sold him a car he didn't want, and he paid a price he didn't want to pay. Isn't that a song I wrote once? Anyway, and it, it just is eating him up. He didn't know about True Car and the True Car app. You can now go online to find the fair price on a new car via True Car. With True Car, you can see what others in your area have paid for the same car you're looking for, which helps you determine a fair price. Then you can get a guaranteed savings certificate from a True Car certified dealer. Your savings will be honored by a True Car certified dealer without the need to negotiate. They just see the price. And they, that's what you pay. That's it. True Car users save an average of $3,221 off MSRP. That's over $3,000 off the manufacturer's suggested retail price on each car. And that's average. That means some people are saving even more. There's no hassles. There's no headaches. It's how car buying was always meant to be. Over 2 million cars have been sold by the True Car Certified Dealer Network. And there are over 10,000 dealers in the True Car Certified Dealer Network. So you know you're going to have one to go to near you. You work directly with a True Car Certified Dealer contact. It's that easy. So visit TrueCar.com or download the True Car app and start saving. True Car, never overpay. A few years before the late, great Kevin Dubrow died, And I just want to say about Kevin Dubrow and Quiet Riot, as I said in their documentary, these guys do not get the credit or the respect they deserve. They were the the head of the spear. I should say the head of the wrecking ball that took down the wall and opened the floodgates wide for metals rebirth in the early 80s. And they were committed to their music form, exactly like Twisted Sister, by the way, exactly. They were the West Coast version of Twisted Sister, a band born of hard rock and the glitter era of the early 70s who refused to give it up and just toughed it out until it came back around and people were ready for it again in its new form, which was became you know heavy metal, Hair metal. It wasn't even called hair metal. When Quiet Riot and Twisted came out in Motley in Rat, there was no hair metal. It was just metal, but then they started to define it by the way we looked. But so they deserve a, a way more credit than they get. So um, it was a number of years ago, and I was uh, at a festival. I was doing radio at the time, and Quiet Riot were playing. It was, you know, it was a hair metal festival, and it was the original band re- reunited, and they were great. Really great. I mean, you know, well in their 40s, even at that point, you know, they were thin. They were stripped down to their their shirtless by the end of the set, rocking out. And it was just really, it was the last reunion of the original band with with Carlos and, and Rudy and Frankie and Kevin. Really incredible. And after the show, I went back to tell Kevin just what, how, how wonderful I thought it was. And Kevin, and he said, you know, thanks, man. And he goes, but, you know, there's just something that's not there. I said, well, you know, we're older, whatever. He goes, well, yeah. He goes, but, and I'm not talking about my band. He goes, but back when we started out, 
back in the day, there was always this threat of violence, imminent danger in any club, any concert event, any show. There was this sense that violence could break out at any minute. And it often did. Did It often did. You know, people were young. People were high. People were on edge. They were angry. They were fired up. Bodies were pressed together. And that's an explosive situation. You put those, all those pieces together. He goes, even backstage amongst the bands, there was that sense of imminent danger. He goes, now everybody's matured and grown up and they're older. And they're, you know, they're, they're not getting high anymore and they're not getting drunk anymore and they, they're eating right and they're working out and they're getting their act together. And he says, and that's great. It's great. But something has been lost. There was something, dare I say magical, that's my word, not his, about that, that edge, that razor's edge, that rock and roll, especially heavy metal, was living on. And I couldn't disagree. It was a point well taken. Even though I had always been a guy who didn't do drugs, didn't get high, always was working out, always stayed in shape, was always with the same woman and stuff like that, there was still playing those bars, playing those clubs, playing those halls, there was an aggression, there was an anger, there was an intensity, there was a vibrance to the shows that is gone. And it surrounded me. And surrounded me. It surrounded my band. How much did it surround me? Well, how about this? I'd say for a good 10 years, anytime I walked, exited a club, exited a concert event, rounded a corner, a blind corner, I raised my arm in a blocking position over my head just in case someone attacked me with a bat. I am not kidding you. That was a very real possibility to me. I was a very vicious, very aggressive, very verbal, very hostile performer. And I was going after people in the audience, both verbally and physically. I was pushing buttons, I was demanding the most out of the crowd, and I was getting it. But I was upsetting people as well. And I knew damn well, because I'd been in enough altercations already, that I need to protect my head. So at least if I did get blindsided, uh, my arm would take, the, would take the brunt of it, and then I'd be able to you know, retaliate. With the rest of my body, I wouldn't be knocked unconscious. So how violent were things (laughs) where this is your state of my state of mind, day in and day out, ready at all times for a fight? And I got in the fights. Um, I, you know... When we go, you got to go back with Twisted Sister to when I joined in 1976. 
The band had already been together for a few years, had been born out of the glitter rock era of David Bowie and Alice Cooper in the early 70s. By the time I joined, they were sort of losing the trappings of glitter rock, wearing less makeup, getting starting to get rid of the clothes. They were even thinking of changing the name. I joined the band, and I'm this young kid from the suburbs. These guys... JJ and company were from the city. Urban areas always like are they discover things first and they're done with it first. And the newest and latest things always hit the urban areas. And glitter rock that you know that David Bowie thing which predates disco really you know was begat out of London, you know, out of the out of the cities. It it grew in the suburbs, but it came from the cities because it had a it had a stylishness to it, especially in Bowie's world. So it was a hip thing. It was a trendy thing. And when they got tired of it, and Bowie moved on to Young Americans, and you know th- people's things started to change, it was decided. Well, it was over. That was over. Glitter rock was over. Well, not to this twenty-year-old kid in the suburbs of Long Island. It was really just reaching us, and I wasn't giving it up. So I joined Twisted Sister and I, because I wanted to keep wearing that stuff. And from day one, I was dressing up. And from day one, it's not like you came to know me. Day, day one, it was women's clothing. I'd go to a women's shop, find a big, big and tall women's shop, get something just, you know, if it made you want to retch, that was what I was wearing. Flowery, blousy, short stockings, gloves, women's gloves, whatever. It was about the reaction, about carrying the torch for the New York Dolls and bands like that and continuing on. And one thing was for sure. If it was passe, if it was considered over, it sure as hell wasn't in the clubs and bars of Long Island and, New Jer- and suburban New Jersey and Connecticut because the reaction to this was still very visceral. The reaction was violent. It upset blue-collar Joes and Janes to see guys dressed like I was dressed and eventually the band going, going back to their roots and, going, and getting more into that. And I used to say, if this is so out, if this is so old, why are people so freaked out by it? They're freaked out by it because it's new to them still. It's only old in the cities, in the urban areas. But this is where metal records, hard rock records are sold, suburbia. And there's an audience for this because some people were really liking it. Now, I come out. This is the 70s, and why am I dressed like this? Well, I, it had appealed to me, the whole look of it. Was I gay? No, I wasn't gay. But the, I liked the dressing up. I, it, it had a fantasy element. It had a larger-than-lifeness to it. At the same time, I'm a, I'm a blue-collar kid from suburbia, and I'm not about to take any shit or put up with any shit from people in the audience. And we're playing some pretty tough bars. Now, I want to get one thing straight right here. I am—I was never a fighter. 
I was never a tough guy. I became one out of necessity. Because, damn it, I was not going to allow people to tell me how I could look. Tell me how I should dress. Tell me what I should do. I was not going to let people in the crowd shit all over me and shit all over my band. I was not going to take it. Hey, good title for a song. I was not going to put up with that crap. So from day one, when we came out in empty places and someone would say something, shout something, usually something like, fag, I immediately would go mental, get hostile, and go after these people. Now, in retrospect, I look back and say, here I am, I'm wearing stockings, Daisy Dukes, long sleeve gloves, and I've got a bunch of you know makeup on my face. What I expect them to call me, macho? Yet, here I am standing in my, in my finery, and I am absolutely hostile over anybody saying anything negative about my band or me. And I would verbally attack it from the stage. And if it escalated, which it usually did, because guys in Twisted were all tall. And it's very tough to judge size when everything on stage is similar. Case in point. When you look at basketball players or football players, it's hard to tell that these guys are monsters. Monsters. You know, I'm 6'1". Back in the day, I would always wear five-inch heels. That was the thing to wear. So I'm 6'6". My hair is another four inches tall. I'm gigantic. I was at a, I was at a donut, a, a, a coffee shop, Dunkin' Donuts. In the States, I'm up here in um, Canada, I'm thinking nobody knows who Dunkin' Donuts is, where people used to meet me all the time. I love coffee, as you may or may not know. And uh, I get from behind me, hey, you D. Snyder? And I turn around, and now, and I'm looking down because when you are 6'6", you're always looking down at people. And I am looking into the chest of somebody. And I look slowly up at this guy who was towering over me. And I'm like, yeah. He goes, hey, I'm Mark Gastineau from the New York Jets. I'm like, whoa, Mark Gastineau. Those of you who might remember him, he had the record for most sacks. And back in the 80s, the New York Jets had what they called the New York Sack Exchange with Mark Gastineau, Joe Klecko, and I don't remember who else. And I became friends with Mark. Well, one day he invited me down to training camp to meet the guys. And I walked back there in my platform shoes and all that stuff. And I was a midget. Watching the game on Sundays, I could not tell that these guys were as big as they were because they're all the same size on the field. Do you all know that ACDC are under five feet tall? No, probably not, unless you understand the actual di- dimensions of, an S- uh, you know, of a Marshall Stack amplifier and a, a Gibson SG guitar. But if you don't, most people don't realize they're like four foot eleven. The two bro- the brothers, four eleven, little. So size is relative. The point being, people would see me on stage. They'd say something. I'd say something back from the stage. They'd figure, ah, I could take this big fairy. They'd make a move to the stage. I'd come off the stage, and now I'm towering over them. And I'm not little. I'm big, and I'm crazy, and I'm mad. 
I'm like the Zuni fighting man from the Karen Black trilogy of terror. I'm old. Very old reference from the 70s. I've referenced that twice in two shows now. So I was mixing it up nightly. I'm doing security for the band. Now, there were some, there's been incidences along the way that stand out. Most of these events, most of the, you know, on a nightly basis, it's pushing and shoving and, you know, and, and the fact that someone, that the, that the guy on the movie screen came out of the movie screen and, and literally went out and confronted them, that was something that was blowing people's minds anyway. You know, they're half in the bag, they're, they're shouting shit at the stage, and then all of a sudden, the guy jumps off the stage and goes running at him at the bar. It was, you know, it's, it's like a moment like blowing minds, especially when you're high. But there were a few moments. One is a, is a small one, but it just bears, just shows you the, the edge. In the earliest days of the band, after one of these shows, I go out to my car, and I'm in my car getting ready to leave. And a hand, it's a summer night, comes in the window, and a guy puts a straight, straight razor to my throat. You know, like you see in the movies, the old style razor, the one that opens up, the old shaving blade, when they slice, you see them slice their, their, their throats, that puts it against my throat. And that I am, and he is, you know, he's drunk. And he's talking shit about whatever I did to upset him. And I'm sitting there going, holy fuck. This is, this is, this is a shit in a movie. What do you do? The razor is right there on your throat. Right there. And I waited. And believe me, I am terrified. Uh, he was talking and I just... In a, in a in a split second, didn't even think about it because what are the what are the choices? I just grabbed his wrist and slammed it to the roof of the car, and the car was running, and I threw the car in reverse because it was facing into the wall, facing the wall in this parking lot, and I backed out of the space and I took off, and he dropped the the straight razor. But holy shit! The reality of of that, the reality, and I I still, I had, I don't know where that straight razor went. I had it for a long time. It was in the junk drawer in the kitchen. Remember the kids saying, "Hey, Dad, what's this straight razor?" And I go, "I'm going to tell you a story about the night your old man nearly had his throat slit." So, I mean, so the violence was so real, and there was. Incidences, and this is in the bars, you know, as we got popular in the clubs, really popular, you know, we would have security at shows. Any security, what would they be? Ultimately, they would be bikers. They, you know, the house, they'd be bikers. And when, and this isn't a, you know, this isn't a, a, a criticism of bikers. There was actually a specific group of black belt bikers. So when things erupted, you know, as, you know, in these packed clubs and, you know, when people pushing and shoving and pandemonium starts going, they would erupt to the next level. The, we weren't, this, this was like the Stones at Altamont. This wasn't, you know, I clearly remember events, you know, there's this one particular event at a packed club where these guys weren't looking to 
stop a fight or protect the band. They were looking for a fight. This is not the right security to hire. They were looking for things to come apart. And the minute it did, they just reverted to their base instincts, was like, hey, I want to fight. In the early days of security, I, you know, you're, you're, when we had security, other, you know, we started hiring people. I remember getting some people where we made some mistakes, you know, um, and we hired people that were, they were tough, but they weren't looking to prevent a problem. They were looking for a fight. That's not the security you want. Security's job is to usher the problems away and out away from you, not bring them to you or make them worse. I remember this one bodyguard we had back in the bar days because we were very, very hugely popular in the tri-state area, playing to thousands of people a night. I swear to you, thousands. We had to have security. Um, and, but, you know, one of the early failed uh, security guys was a uh, Hells Angels pledge. And I remember him running in the dressing room to say, Dave, there's a guy laying out in the street and everybody's kicking the shit out of him. Want to go and get a few shots in? I looked at him and said, Mo, it's Moby. We called him Moby. Moby, what are you talking about? He goes, yeah, come on outside. I'm getting, we're all getting a few shots in. They were just beating the piss out of some guy laying on the ground for the sake of beating him up. No, not security. But this is the violent tone. Every now and then you would hear, and it happened in New Jersey back in the 70s, where the bouncers killed somebody. You know, it was, it was not the safest environment to be in. You know, and there was, and that edge of violence. Now, as far as the bodyguards for Twisted Sister goes, we first got those back in the club days. Like I said, we were hugely popular. After that story where I told you we, I, I tr- invented stage diving, I believe I told, took it in one of the, uh, told it in one of the other war stories where some guy threw a bottle at me and the first genuine stage dive, I leaped off a six foot stage, swan dived into a crowd, who parted like the Red Sea, and I hit the ground, hurt my leg. We wound up canceling a bunch of shows, and it was decided that we needed to have security because we were getting too popular for me, the lead singer, and too, it was too, I was too important to be doing security for the band. So they literally, we literally hired people to protect us. Which brings us to one of the big violent situations in the clubs one of the war stories in the clubs and this one was horrendous this one was ugly club was called speaks and uh we used to to hold about over a thousand people and we used to pack them in that place pack them and it was thanksgiving weekend which is the big the biggest club weekend still to this day the biggest club weekend and the place was packed to the rafters uh, after, all right, I got to back this up a little bit here. We've already got security. We've already got bodyguards. We've had them for a while, you know, uh, to protect the band and, and to keep me from going out in the audience, you know, and, and doing the dirty work. So backing things up a little bit, one of the targets besides band members, when you're in the club scene, uh, for the targets for hostility is your vehicle. People 
who have got a hard-on for you will often seek out your car to get retribution. They can't get it from you or they're afraid to get it from you or they don't want to wait around to get it from you or whatever it is. But leaving a club, especially when D. Snyder has been insulting the shit out of you, calling you every kind of little piece of shit, I would just, the things I would say to people who gave me attitude in the bars, people who said something to me, you know, you, you're around the house and you're out with your friends and, you know, and you start mocking on the lead singer in this gay band, gay being us, and the lead singer, you know, dressed in a negligee, runs off the stage, gets in your face, and basically puts you in your place and shuts you down in front of all your friends. You're not really feeling good about yourself. It's not a, it's not a, you know, it doesn't, it's not a morale-building experience to have a big fag. I'm, I'm just using the, you know, inappropriate words here, but, you know, I was the one. Um, shut you down. So, you have a situation where our cars, which were often parked right, of course, where you park. You get there early because you're doing sound check. You park in the best parking space right outside, until you know better, by the way, right outside the club back door. So they know which are your cars, and they go there, and you come out, and your car's been keyed. Your windshield wipers have been broken off. Your door's been kicked in. Your windshield's been cracked with a, with a rock or a bat. You know, so after a while, you, you, you keep your cars far away. But this said, your car is a target, and you never see the person who did it. You come out at the end of the night, and your car has been damaged. And this happens again and again and again to multiple members of the band, and it becomes a real frustration. Well, one night at the end of the show, it's long after the show, and uh, there's a knock at the backstage door, and some fans are there, and they're like, hey, man, our car battery's dead. Can we get a jump? And I'm like, uh, you know what? Our crew guys will help you out. You know, the fans, they were stuck there. We talk, shows are over now, you know, 2, 3 in the morning. Now it's 4 in the morning, you know, and these people, are, it's a cold night or whatever. They're stuck out there. You don't want to leave a fan out there. So I was like, yeah, um, crew will help you out. So, and I said, you know, I'll give you a, uh, uh, I'll, I'll, let, I'll give you a boost off my car. So I go to open the door of my car, and and the, their car is parked nearby. And you know something's wrong, but you don't realize what it is. You open the door and you say, something's not right here. Put the key in the ignition, nothing, dead. You realize what was wrong is the interior light didn't go on. The battery's dead. What the hell? My battery's dead. Shit, guys, I'm sorry. My battery's dead. Pop the hood. My battery's gone. So motherfuckers have stolen my battery. It's like, fuck. So meanwhile, my roadie, actually my bodyguard, security, not my bodyguard, security for the band, this tough guy who's not with us anymore, John, I'm trying to remember John's last name. Just give him some props, but I can't remember it right now. Anyway, Russo, John Russo, lethal motherfucker. Anyway, He's over helping them out with their car, trying to give them a start. And I walk over, and I see my battery in their car. I know it's my battery because I had a cracked terminal, uh, you know, cracked, uh, I should say, with your filler cap. And it's a Delco Energizer with a crack cap. And there's no doubt, it is my battery. What they did, and not realizing it's my car, they their battery died. They stole the battery out of a car backstage. 
in the backstage backdoor area, and they put it in their car, and they were having a problem getting the car started. So I go, shit, this is my battery. You stole my battery. Now, my brain is processing what's happened here. My brothers used to steal car batteries all the time. And when they would tell the stories, their tales of theft, we would be rolling at these tales. So my mind, I'm thinking here, okay, this is fucked up. I'm pissed off. But it's very funny when my brothers and my friends do it. So why... You know, is it not funny now? And before I could sort of process this kind of thing, because I'm ultimately fair guy, John Russo, our security, starts pounding the shit out of all these. There's like four guys and a girl. And he starts wailing on all of them. I'm like, whoa, John. Crew comes out. John screams, they stole these battery. Now the crew is in, they're invested. The crew, they've been through it as well. This is like everybody is just, and, and band members are coming out. Everybody is getting out their their anger, their built-up hostility, because all the times some indignity has been performed happened to their car. Some scratch and break and theft and everything that's happened to their car. Now, finally, in their hands, we have somebody. So people are going at them. And they are just kicking the shit out of them, all right? And it's and it's till these guys are beaten up and are on the ground. And my then drummer, who shall remain nameless, who's no longer in the band, he was never in the band when it happened. He was a drummer back in the bar days. You remember I told you about Moby, how he was like getting shots in, you know, on a, on a guy who was laying on the ground. Well, my see my drummer, and he is punching this guy is laying on the ground and he's done and he's kneeling down by him and he's just punching him in the face and the guy's girlfriend the one girl that was with with these people she's like Limo, please let him up he's 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 he's, you know he's out he's knocked out he's done he's done and he's just punching him and she's screaming really loudly and finally this guy this drummer who was really a piece of shit he straight fists this girl right in the face and knocks her right off of his feet. And I'm standing there with one of my roadies. I said, oh, shit. Now we're in for it. Because something superhuman happens to men when their women are put upon. They find strength. They find resources. They find something because it takes them to another level. It, it, this is just historically. It's an instinctive. It's a protective thing. Just as this girl was screaming, let my man up, when this man's woman got hit, she, I knew all hell was going to break loose. I'll tell you what happened. 
All right, everybody listen up. This is important. I just want to take a minute to thank all my great sponsors and all of you, my great listeners, for supporting my sponsors and this podcast. You are keeping this thing on the air. All of your contributions help make the show possible. And I want to remind you that you can support my sponsors by going to my show page at podcastone.com, clicking on the Support This Podcast banner, and there you will see all my wonderful sponsors that help keep the lights on. I love those guys. In addition to my sponsors, you can also support this podcast by using my Amazon banner. Amazon offers a show a small commission on any product you purchase. Buying through Amazon anyway, do it through my banner. You can even use my Amazon banner if you're located in Canada or the UK. Also, to make it easier for all future purchases, feel free to bookmark my Amazon URL. Please do. Thank you again for all your support for this show. And now back to the action. Okay, exactly who do Sean and Larry King talk to on their podcast? I spoke to Donald Trump today. Heard of him? Yeah, the Donald. The Donald. (laughs) He he called and um, I invited him on our podcast and he said, well, he will come on within the next month. And that later this month happens Friday, October 23rd. That means Trump joins an already impressive celeb list, including comic legends Martin Short and Carl Reiner, mom and Masters of Sex star Allison Janney, Dr. Drew Pinsky, Empire's Tasha Smith, Botch star Dr. Paul Massey, The Blacklist, Megan Boone, Craig Ferguson, Jeff Ross, and so many more. Scott the Beta King. Download your favorite episode of Back and Forth with Sean and Larry King today at podcastone.com. That's podcastone.com. So, we're picking up the pieces, the, the, these guys that, that have gotten beaten up, and the girl, they disappear. Uh, they leave their car behind, because it's dead. Monte Carlo, I remember it. And uh, getting my battery in my car, I've got these roadies putting the, you know, putting the battery, reinstalling the battery, because I'm, you know, I'm the band, putting the battery back in my car. And we're packing down our gear, getting ready to leave. I'm outside, and all of a sudden I look up, and I see about 25 guys coming through the parking lot towards us. And I could see they are carrying boards and bats. And I hear the girl, the girlfriend, the one that got knocked on the floor, Scream, that's them. And these guys move toward us. These four guys and their girl had used that energy of they punched my girlfriend to gather a small army instantly. Practically, so they went around to the front of the building, out to the parking lot, and found people. I found out later that these people weren't even associates of theirs. They were just people hanging out, you know, high, edgy. This is what I'm talking about. This, this, this sense of violence, looking for trouble. And they found a cause. It was like the unforgiven. Hey, help us. These guys, they didn't even say it was Twisted Sister. These guys punched my girlfriend in the face. Now these guys had a purpose. They weren't just troublemakers. Now they were vigilantes. They were, they were come, they were rescuing a fair maiden. So they come back. Some of us are outside. Some of the crew are outside. And this army of guys comes, descends upon us. And the confrontation starts. Now I am standing 
closest to the door. And we are outnumbered. I'm closest to the door of the club. I, I actually, there was, there was one guy came at me. And uh, he looks at me, he goes, I don't want any trouble. And I go, man, that's pretty cool. I realize now that, you know, with my, you know, being six foot six in my heels and my leather jacket on and whatever, I must look like a monster in the dark. He drops his shit. And I say, we need help. I grab the stage door. I run inside. I say, guys, there's a shitload of bodies, people out there. They're coming out after us. They're coming with bats and stuff. We need help. I hear the door behind me slam. I turn around and the club owners and the house security guys. And this club, by the way, was a mob-owned club. They close the door and they bolt it and they go, no one's going out there. Now, I know that some of my band members, my road crew, my friends are outside, woefully outnumbered. My drummer, my sound man, John Russo I mentioned, who I'm sure, John Russo I mentioned, Eddie Ojeda was out there, roadies were out there, but it was only like 25 guys to about seven. And I said, are you kidding me? We got to go out there and help them. And now we're hearing stuff breaking. The sounds of glass breaking. We're hearing shouts and screams, the sounds of violence. And I'm go, I go, we got to go out there. They're getting killed out there. And he goes, and they go, this is the, this, this is the guys from the club, mob guys. Like, no one is going out there. They, I know they had guns. I'm talking about the mob guys. And they block the doors and keep us inside. Well, when the sounds of violence finally stop, they open the door and we go out. And the carnage, my car had been smashed to shit. And inside it, my two roadies who had hidden, and actually I want to be, uh, be uh, it was Zebra, the band Zebra, their roadies were helping me out with my battery. They had been attacked. They'd gone in the car and locked the doors to protect themselves. And the people had smashed out the windows and jabbed them with pipes and boards and were hitting them from outside. They had to be hospitalized. My drummer was laying on the ground. Eddie Ojeda had been attacked. My, my sound man. The only person still standing was John Russo, the bodyguard, this wicked, vicious guy who had started, you know, he attacked the people in the first place. They, they, they couldn't take him out. Guy was a monster. Guy was like a, he was, he wasn't really tall. He was more like a washing machine. I mean, just, oh, anyway, but that's beside the point. And, we wound up, uh, my drummer was hospitalized. We wound up canceling the shows, the next show, couple of shows. Uh, and, the, 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 and, and what did we do in retribution? This place was on the water. We all pushed the Monte Carlo into the canal. Needless to say, the next night, we actually did play the next night. We had Bobby Rondinelli. That's right. Bobby Rondinelli um, came and played drums for we we did a few songs with Bobby Rondinelli from Rainbow and a couple other bands and uh and we had people there we had an army there in case there was you know if there was a, a, another conflict or a revenge kind of thing going on but this is the 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 level of violence that just existed 
Uh, we had our truck set on fire one night. Again, retribution. All of a sudden, somebody comes in. There's a fire outside. We're on stage. They go, a crew goes outside, and our truck is in flames. There was this kind of hostility. And we were hugely popular. But when you're that kind of band that's pushing people, and, 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 and which we were, you know people, you know Twisted Sister and Dee Snyder. Oh, he's such a nice guy. Yeah, not so much in the old days. Just ask my wife. Um, there was that. So we had, you know, eventually, we, so we had these issues in the clubs. Now, when we go off and we start touring, in the early days of touring, we couldn't afford. We're back to square one. In the bars, we were making a lot of money. We could afford to have security guys. We had no security guys. And I'm back to doing my own security again. So when we're in England and the, and the Mofo's motorcycle gang, after a concert in Nottingham, want Twisted Sister to take off their Twisted Sister colors. Because we're, like, remember the Warriors? You don't want you, you know, warring or whatever they call it through our turf. They want us to take off our colors, and I refuse to take my colors off. I don't know. I'm out of my mind. You know, it's we're basically us against the motorcycle gang. It wind up not erupting into every anything, but we didn't take our damn colors off. Fuck that. When we were in Kansas City and some guy attacked me on stage, climbed up, and this is you can verify this, Johnny Dare on uh, <laughs> uh, Johnny Dare on Kansas City, City Radio on the Rock over there. He'll tell you he was in the audience. Met plenty of people were this guy. Got up, climbed up, came after me on the stage because there was tables. And I one-punched him off the stage into the crowd. I remember it was crazy. I remember Queensryche was opening for us at this show, and it was one of their first shows ever, where Twisted Sister was a band begat from the bar scene and thousands of live shows. Queensryche was begat from a basement. They just rehearsed, and then they got a deal, and then they went out. Their second show ever is is opening for Twisted Sister and touring with Twisted. And in that first night, they stood there and watched as I get into a brawl on stage, Two strippers come on stage and do a striptease, just in spontaneous. All hell is breaking loose. And as I walked off the stage, I remember one of the guys in the band uh, say, turns to me and says, is that what it's like every night? To which I responded, "Not nah, only the good ones. This is what Kevin Dubrow is talking about. And then there's this story. Twisted Sister gets a gig in the Appalachian Mountains of New York. Why the hell would we play Appalachia? Well, the guy from the club where I got the straight razor head at my throat, he was, they were friends. You know, the early, you, you, in the early days of bars, you become friends with these people, you know? And he had opened up a good-sized club and he, um, in, in upstate New York in the Appalachian Mountains, and he was looking to bring national acts. And he asked Twisted Sister, this is your Can't Stop Rock and Roll era Twisted Sister, before Stay Hungry, if we would come and play his club. He had an official stage and, you know, it was a, uh, you know, and it was a favor to a buddy. And we say, yeah, sure. So we route our tour, our van tour, upstate New York. I can't remember the name of the town, but it's a, it's a, it is a little rednecky 
hellhole of a town. And we go there. Well, during the set, as you can imagine, the locals, because now we're in a pure rural area, they're not particularly fond of a bunch of guys leaping around, screaming and cursing with a face full of makeup. And someone, one of them in the back of the room, starts really giving me shit. Well, I finally can't fucking stand anymore. I jump off the stage, plow through the crowd, and I get right up to this guy all the way at the end in the back. I mean, I'm, I'm, people, people love this. This is the guy in the band is in the audience, start mixing it up. And me and him get into a, you know, back and forth, fuck you, blah, 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 blah. You know, and again, most of the time fights don't erupt because people are kind of thrown when this, they didn't think I was so big and I looked twice as scary coming at him. And now I've embarrassed him in front of his friends. We finish the set. We go backstage. We're getting ready to leave that night. And, um, my road manager comes up and said, we got a problem. Joe Gerber, the guy from, I've told you about the one who sits by my right hand when I do the test testimony in Washington. He goes, we got a problem. He goes, they're back. Who's back? You know, those guys, you had the confrontation, the guy, I said, yeah, well, he's back with a bunch of their friends and they're outside waiting for you guys with bats, boards, ax handles. They're waiting, they're, they're waiting for the band to come out. Now, me being a hothead that I am, those motherfuckers, I'm like, I'm like ready to go. I'm, I got to tell you, I'm not that tough. I'm just nuts, especially back then. I had a chip on my shoulder. It was massive. So I'm, I'm ready to go outside and mix it up, and the guys are going, what, are you freaking kidding? D, stop. Calm down. We're going to get killed. There's like 20 guys out there. Now, our friends who own the club, Joe Ruggiero, I'm Joey, if you're tuning in, I remember you, Joey. Uh, he comes up, he goes, all right, look, um, I talked to them, and uh, we're not going to have a problem, but we got to get you guys out of here. So let us know when everybody's ready. We will escort you to the van, and we got to escort you to the town line. I'm like, seriously? They're like, seriously. When we're all ready to go, band and crew, Joe Ruggiero and his guys, who are all, you know, Long Islanders, shall I say, with guns drawn, guns drawn, escort us out to our van. We walk past this gauntlet of hillbillies with their bats and their axe handles and they and I am and 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 the band said, "D, please, please don't say anything. Don't say anything because I am an asshole, and I am just not that I'm. I just the idea that I've got to shut up or be put down by these motherfuckers, these fucking ignorant hayseeds. Sorry, hayseeds, but I mean this is just you know, I, it's it's unfair. But this, this is I'm talking. I'm reflecting how I'm feeling at the time. But we are literally escorted by armed men to our van." We get in the van. They box in. This is our people, our vans and our truck with their private cars, Cadillacs, of course, with guns drawn, taking up the entire two-lane road exiting town. They surround our vehicle with their vehicles and slowly drive us to the edge of town. And when we get to the edge of town and they know we're safely away from these lunatics who want to beat the piss out of us they say boys it's great seeing you i don't think we'll be seeing you again (laughs) 
and, and we drive away. All right. I thought I'd have time to get to the story of my final confrontation, the story of when I got a bodyguard, the last time I dove off a stage and attacked somebody in the audience because I was attacked. But I'll have to save that for, I guess, another War Stories. Maybe there is another War Stories Part 5 coming. Have a great week. Stay tuned for the latest AP News headlines from Podcast One, right after this. AP Update, I'm Ross Simpson. The Vice President of Governance Studies at the Brookings Institution in Washington says Vice President Joe Biden's decision not to run for president helps Hillary Rodham Clinton and hurts Bernie Sanders. His exit will allow her to attract additional support because they draw on similar parts of the Democratic base. Uh, It's probably going to be a rougher race for Bernie Sanders uh, in the sense that it will be harder for him to get that Biden vote. Campaigning in New York. Senator Sanders said he has nothing but respect for the vice president. Joe Biden is a man who has devoted uh, his entire life to public service and to the well-being of working families uh, and the middle class. The Blue Jays are still alive in the ALCS. They beat the Royals 7-1 to in Game 5. KC leads the series three games to two. AP Update, I'm Ross Simpson.